Operation Neptune, also known as the Normandy Landings or D-Day, was one of the most important battles in human history, allowing the Allied powers of World War II to reopen the Western European theater. As crucial as this battle is, there's no wonder that there is a ton of tourist attractions today where the landing occurred. And with millions of people visiting every year, it's a major hotbed of tourism to this day as befits the significance of the area. Today, we discover the tourist logistics of D-Day. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. So first of all, we need to clear up the names. Let's start off with the often heard and ever popular name, Operation Overlord. Operation Overlord refers to the entire Battle of Normandy, from the first amphibious invasion to the liberation of Paris and up to the expulsion of Nazi forces across the Seine River. A more specific name for the landings themselves is Operation Neptune, which refers to the landing and supporting operations. We'll provide context by detailing the operations leading up to it, as knowledge of them may help emphasize the battle's importance. So as the United States entered the fray, a priority problem arose. With the invasion of the Allied colonial holdings in the Pacific, they now had to fight a war across the world. So who to target? Germany or Japan? Well, there was also Italy, but since they were bordering Germany, and since Winston Churchill went as far as to call Italy Germany's, quote, soft underbelly, an attack against them was an attack against Germany. Given the circumstances on either side of the world, the Allies decided to adopt a Germany-first policy when it came to dismantling the Axis powers. On the 8th of November, 1942, while the plans for a cross-channel invasion were still in the works, the Allies executed an offensive in North Africa, Operation Torch. This involved landings in numerous locations in the colonial holdings of the Vichy regime of France. With the aid of intel gathered from broken German signal codes, the Allies were able to sweep up the last Axis holdouts in Africa, turning over Algeria to the Free French. Operation Husky followed Operation Torch in July of 1943, when the Allied powers struck at Germany's so-called soft underbelly by invading Sicily. After that, they landed on the Italian mainland with Operation Avalanche in September of 1943, and from Naples to Anzio with Operation Shingle in July of 1944. And while these operations were impressive and forced the Axis into a much more defensive position, none of these were landings across the English Channel, which the Russians were insisting on. American troops began gathering in Britain by June of 1942. By May of 1944, there were 1,526,000 American soldiers in the British Isles. For the landings, the Allies developed a family of landing craft vessels for various kinds of cargo. The most common was the Higgins boat, officially designated as Landing Craft Personnel, or LCP. Well, there were many later and better variations, most functioned similar to each other. Soldiers entered the boats by climbing down nets into holds. The holds themselves had no seats or anything of the kind, so some likened it to a roofless railroad boxcar. The Allies developed other landing craft variations for mechanized equipment, infantry, and tanks. 
Due to the landing craft's unorthodox shape, they were very rough on the water, causing frequent seasickness and sometimes being torn apart by the waves. On the night of June the 2nd, 1944, the first landing party sorted and the first gunfire support ships left from Northern Ireland and Scotland. The crossing was as uncomfortable as predicted, but the landing craft rendezvoused at the predetermined location, codenamed Piccadilly Circus. From there, the over 2,000 landing crafts traveled to the French coast at the codenamed beaches, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juneau, and Sword. American soldiers at Utah and Omaha, the British at Sword and Gold, and the Canadians at Juneau. Utah and Omaha had the task of capturing Keratin to unite the beachhead and then cut off the city of Cherbourg and capture the ports there. The other three beaches were to capture Caen and its airfields. In the process, within the first 24 hours, 4,900 Allied troops gave up their lives, and 8,975 Axis troops did the same. But it wasn't in vain. You see, the battles that took place on these five beaches changed the world. For the most part, the beaches today are still as they were back in 1944, but what exactly is there to see and do? Well, nearly 80 years of being out in the open have caused them to deteriorate slightly. Many of the obstacles set in place by the defenders are still there, and the region offers various tours of the area to take it all in. One of the most iconic defenses implemented on the Atlantic Wall was the Czech Hedgehogs, which was a bundle of metal beams thrown about the beach. They served many purposes, including acting as anti-tank traps and shredding landing crafts that made contact with them. These are located all across the D-Day beaches and, in fact, are still in use in static defenses today, for example, in Ukraine. Another iconic structure is the Pillbox Bunker, concrete bunker built on the heights overlooking the beaches. There are several variations on the Atlantic Wall, including one with a narrow opening for a machine gun and another with an open top for artillery. Of course, these weren't the only defensive positions. There were also several trench locations on the beaches for machine gunners dug out of the dirt or sand. There was also Rommel's Asparagus, named after a German field officer who coordinated the defenses. These were wooden poles driven into the ground with razor wire strung between them to shred gliders and harm their infantry. The Germans found many ways to use wooden poles in their defenses. One such method was sticking mines to their end and sinking them into the beach during low tide. During high tide, they would be just under the surface of the water, making a landing extremely dangerous. In some cases, these defenses are still intact, aside from the obvious disarming of mines. Though, according to some, there might be active mines in the water today, so there could potentially be a danger posed to swimmers. Tourism to the battlefields began almost immediately after the battles ended, with locals flocking to the beaches to see what exactly just happened. As the war ended and the infrastructure of France recovered, the integration of the region permitted anyone traveling to Paris to take a short detour to see the D-Day beaches. This allowed British, Canadian, and American tourists to see where their countrymen bled and died for freedom. 
though this increasing tourism posed a unique issue to the region's significance. Remembrance tourism of Normandy has become increasingly fantastical, downplaying the horrors of the Second World War in favor of serving principles and ideals of modern time, especially as the 80th anniversary of the landings draw closer. Part of the reason this happens is the idea of a good war in the minds of foreign visitors, in particular American ones. World War II was a war fought entirely off the American mainland, so their audiences tend to forget the horrors of it. They tend to only remember the parts where they won, and not where their brothers died. Several companies in Normandy, often American companies, offer tours that emphasize this idea. One of the most renowned tours highlights the Battle of Paris and the actions of the French resistance and American armed forces, phrased as solely responsible for the liberation. However, this only reinforces the idea of America's good war. Locals of the Normandy region know that, and this exploitation is very controversial in many communities. The public backlash surrounding a commercial project called Tribute to the Heroes, announced in January of 2020 with an entrance price of 30 euros per person, posing a fitting example. As a public consultation opened in August of 2022, Many called the site pretty nasty names, such as D-Day Land or Disneyland 44. Criticism from public officials followed soon after, as well as a change in direction for the project altogether. The goal is to understand how far the average soldier came from across the world to fight for the freedom of France, with a renowned focus on the battle itself and the death it involved. However, this focus has brought great success to the area. From all across the world every year, 48.5 million people stay overnight in the Normandy region, accounting for 5.7% of the entire region's GDP. The beaches and other historical locations remain the region's main features, but the commercialization has undoubtedly contributed to the undermining of their importance. And it's not hard to understand why some might be upset. Just consider it, an international effort brought forth to rescue a whole continent from the most evil regime the world has ever known, just for the place where the metaphorical dam broke to become a tourist trap. The place where the free world bled to lift the jackboots from its brothers' backs, desecrated by companies solely dedicated to exploiting the region, some not even native to France. The word insulting comes to mind, though some may go as far as to call it sacrilege. And you might be wondering, how can I help? How can I remember the Second World War with all of its victories and destruction so that a conflict so horrible will never happen again? The answer is simple. Educate yourself, read, listen, and understand as much as you can. Compare what you hear with other sources and the full magnitude of it will come to scale. But for closure's sake, let me offer one last statistic. World War II's estimated death toll was 40 to 50 million people. Now you tell me, does that sound like a fun tourist location to you? I'll leave it right there for today, guys. And until next time, this is Ryan Sokash, signing off.